0: I have five boys. I think Kyle said I have five kids. I have five boys, uh, so that's pretty fun. Uh, My life is never boring. Um, But uh, Essen asked if I'd be willing to preach this morning, and I'm a very young preacher, so I appreciate this opportunity that I can get to grow in grace and my understanding and my ability to communicate God's truth. Um, Before we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you all a question. When was the last time that you were angry and bitter with God? A few months ago, my family got back from Japan and uh, we were trying to get settled, school had just started, Uh, our kids were only two weeks into their fall semester, and one of my sons tested positive for COVID. And uh, I couldn't believe it because we had spent the last year and a half in Japan, like being super careful, dodging COVID, only to come back to the States and get it within a month. And, uh, of course, a few of us, kind of like dominoes, uh, all got it and we had to quarantine, for three weeks, like two weeks into the school year, three weeks at home, quarantining as a family. Um, And my wife and I really felt for our kids because this is our boys' first experience really for most of them to have uh, school in English and to be in the States for school. And uh, so they were excited about making friends. They had just started soccer. And and so we're really kind of mourning that, oh wow, like two weeks into it and then three weeks off of quarantining at home. And on top of that, uh, I was enrolled. I'm enrolled in uh, RTSDC. And so I'm still studying, you know, every day and working on assignments and research and, uh, you know, papers and stuff. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I have five crazy boys yelling. And so it made quite an interesting few weeks uh, for me to try to get my studying done around the house. But on top of this, we had been preparing for a leadership assessment with Mission to the World. That's our mission organization down in Atlanta. And so my wife and I had been months of interviews and application process and all this stuff, and we're supposed to get out to Atlanta, and we had to postpone that whole thing. And it was such an inconvenience for us, and I was angry and upset. This is the worst time to get COVID. <laughs> and my wife and I were frustrated and angry and bitter that God allowed this to happen in that timing. Maybe you can relate. Have you been angry and frustrated with God that you've grumbled and complained against him, resulting in a bitter heart? Well, this is kind of some of the context for Exodus 17 in our text this morning because Israel is unhappy with God. They're bitter and they're complaining against him. And God had just rescued Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh and being enslaved in Egypt, Moses had led them out of Egypt and God had shown his power and his authority by executing plagues against the Egyptians in order to free Israel. And now by God's guidance, as Moses leads them out through into the wilderness to the promised land, God guides them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and provides manna for them from heaven. And he provides water along the way. And yet on the way to the promised land, they stop and they uh, rest, but there's no water to drink. And so they grumble and they complain to Moses against God. And yet here's the main point of this sermon, because we're always told, you know, just make, make a main point. So I want you guys to remember this. Despite Israel's rebellion, God responds justly and mercifully. He provides water for them to drink so that they don't die. And we'll see this morning how God meets Israel's rebellion with his grace, and he uses this opportunity to display his provision and his power. So uh, as I read uh, Exodus 17:1 through 7, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word this morning. It is holy and without error. It is living and it is active. And we pray that through it, you would show us the depth of your truth, the depth of our sin. Show us your wisdom, Lord and your covenant love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Israel stops to rest and there's no water. They're thirsty. The people argue and contend with Moses, give us water to drink. They sound like kids, you know, give me water. This is a legitimate concern that they have. It's a harsh environment. They're in the wilderness uh, the wilderness is not a place that people actually end up staying and you're know, raising families and livestock. It's a place you pass through because it's a barren wilderness. It's a harsh land. No one lives there. And here Israel is sojourning, coming through the land on their way to the promised land. There's no water to drink. And look what Moses says in verse two. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, you know this if you're a kid or if you've been a kid or if you have kids, that uh, your kids might test you. How much can I get away with? How much can I push dad before he really just blows up and gets mad? The Israelites are testing God's patience. Uh, are you really going to provide for us, God? And the people continue to grumble and complain to Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, it's really important to note here that Israel's complaining to Moses is really directed at God himself. Moses is the leader that God had appointed for Israel, and he's the representative of the people to God, but he's also God's appointed leader to lead out and to carry out God's plan for for them. And so doubting Moses and his leadership is really a direct assault on God and his purposes their complaining is now accusatory. Did you pick that up in in, uh, what they said? Moses is distraught and he can't fix the situation and it's getting worse. So rightly, he cries out to God in verse four, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the people aren't just upset or perturbed. Their accusations towards Moses and God grow. Now, here's where the last uh, six months of my intensive Hebrew study comes into into play. Um, The word that's used in Hebrew, rev, often means to argue or to contend with. Uh, Why do you contend with God? But in some cases, it can also mean to draw up a legal dispute with the opposite party. And this is exactly what the Israelites are doing. They are so angry with Moses and with God that they are not only accusing him, to test him, they are legally taking God and Moses to court. They're reversing the roles. See, God is the judge, and Israel should be in the judgment seat, but Israel is taking God and putting him in the judgment seat, and they're the judge now. And we see this in their language and how they treat Moses and how they accuse him and God of bringing them out of Egypt to kill them. They're making their stand. God, this is not what we wanted. We wanted to be rescued from slavery, from Egypt, but we didn't want to be tramping through the wilderness. We don't like being sojourners. It's hot. It's dirty. We're tired of this manna. It would have been better off to have not left Egypt. The Israelites are so bitter with God that it's affected their own perception of their captivity in Egypt. Did you see that? All of a sudden, their slavery in Egypt seemed like it was better than freedom under God. And they're starting to forget how bad their slavery and captivity was to the point that they're ready to kill Moses. And I want us to consider this situation from Moses' perspective as a leader as well. He was doubtful from the beginning of God's calling him that Israel would even listen to him and follow him. And if you read Exodus 3, there's a long dialogue at the burning bush where Moses pulls out every excuse not to go back to Egypt and not to obey God. He even says, God, why will they listen to me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And Moses rightfully cries out to God in his distress uh, before Israel is ready to stone him. This situation is out of his control. And the people are on the verge of stoning him in verse 4. So we get this insight by the Hebrew language, but also Moses' words. And the situation has escalated, and the Israelites are like an angry mob out of control. I want to suggest three things that we can learn about Israel here in this passage. The first thing is that Israel forgets God and his provision in the past. This is really ironic, because God has just rescued them out of Egypt. One commentator notes that the first half of the book of Exodus is really God's polemic against Egypt and to show his power and his authority over every Egyptian god. And the Nile itself was a god and worshipped as the giver of life for all of Egypt, and and the Egyptians knew this. And God's first plague is to show that he's God over the God of the Nile, that he turns the Nile into blood, and he has the power and authority to take life and to give it. And so, God leads them out of Egypt. He splits the Red Sea so that Israel can cross to the other side. He destroys Pharaoh's army and then he provides a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them. And then he provides manna from heaven and he provides water. And it's like Israel's completely and quickly forgotten God and how he's provided for them every step of the way. The second thing is that Israel doubts God and his plan for them. They said, Did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? They're thinking, maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he and Moses didn't actually think this plan through enough. We need to take matters into our own hands. I knew we couldn't rely on God. So they doubt God and his plan for them. And thirdly, Israel questions if God is even in their midst. They say, is the Lord among us or not? And this is a huge insult to God, Is God even with us? They're surrounded by God. God promises all the way back in Genesis 17 uh, to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. God has promised to be their God, to be with them, and they his people. And then further, he promises to dwell with them. In Exodus 29, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So asking the question, is God even with us, is a huge insult to God and his covenant promises that he's made to Abraham and to Israel. So how does God respond to these rebellious, stubborn people? Well, God says to Moses in verse five, pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, Moses' staff uh, was hardly a cane for an old man. In fact, I can tell you that uh, for a fact that Gandalf's staff had nothing on the staff of Moses. Many of us uh, might be familiar with the scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf protects his friends and he stands on the bridge between the dreaded monster, the Balrog, and the hobbits and his, you know, his friends, and he shouts, you shall not pass, thundering his staff into the stone and an awesome display of wizardry and power. So please forgive me for my nerdy side throwing that into the sermon. I just had to do that. Um, but getting back to Moses' staff, It was an instrument uh, in almost every plague that God dealt to the Egyptians. It was the instrument that God used to turn the Nile into blood. And almost every plague begins with God commanding Moses and Aaron to stretch out the staff over Egypt in order to execute judgment over it. So when Moses is asked to grab his staff, it means that judgment is coming. And God says to Moses in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God is with Moses. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. God is with Moses as he takes his staff and he strikes the rock so that water may flow and that people may drink. In verse six it says, Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is he among us or not? Moses actually names these places after the Israelites' contention with God. Masa in Hebrew means testing, Meribah means rebellion. So Moses wants the people of Israel to remember how they put God to the test and how they acted in rebellion against him in the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. So remember the three ways that Israel acted. They forget God and his provision in the past. They doubt God and his plan for them. And they question, is God with us? And I wanna juxtapose these three ways that they act with how God responds to them. So where Israel forgets God and his provision in the past, God remembers his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The whole reason that God had rescued Israel from the oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh's because he had remembered his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And in the opening lines of Exodus, it captures this harsh reality of Israel's slavery and oppression under Pharaoh. It says that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so where Israel doubts God and his plan for them, God provides for Israel despite their unbelief. He provides water for them, even though in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, he provides. And where Israel questions whether or not God is with them, God shows that he is among them, and he appoints the rock to take the judgment instead of the people. He says, I will stand with you there on the rock. So what does this story mean for us as God's people? What can we learn from Israel's failure to remember God and his promises? This happened over 3,000 years ago or something like that. I believe that we can learn a lot. I would argue that we are more like the people of Israel than we would care to admit. Like Israel, we often forget God and his provision in the past. How many times has God shown his goodness to us in ways that he's provided for us? And yet, the moment that we begin to face a trial of some kind, we quickly forget God and how he's always given us what we've needed. Like Israel, we also doubt God and the sovereignty of his plan. Things in life don't go the way that we want, and we quickly elevate ourselves to God's seat of dominion. We doubt whether God really knows what he's doing whether or not his plan and the orchestrations of the universe are really his doing. And like Israel, we question whether or not God is with us. Something hard in life happens and we feel alone, self-reliant to take on the problem ourselves without giving God a second thought. We'd rather work harder, try to solve the problem on our own effort, instead of depending on God. And God seems distant far off, disconnected from our everyday lives. And we too can get angry and bitter with God accusing him and taking him to court. We missionaries struggle too. A couple of months ago, uh, my family came down to worship with you all uh, here at Tabernacle. And as the worship service progressed, uh, I think it, an elder, I think it was Dave Sawyer, got up and shared an amazing testimony of God's work through the McCall family uh, sent out from this congregation down to Colombia, And as he began sharing about their work, I started no- noticing so many similarities between what they're doing in Colombia and what we're doing in Japan. My eldest son even leaned over to me uh, during that time and enthusiastically said, hey dad, they're doing university ministry just like we are. And there couldn't have been more similarities in our approach and philosophy of ministry And David had shared this amazing testimony about how the McCalls had formed a core team that aligned on values and approach to ministry, and they had found this amazing building between a supermarket and a gym, a highly trafficked area for so many in the community, and they were celebrating their first worship service with a great turnout. Wow. Praise God. What an amazing testament to God's faithfulness and power working in and through them. And yet, as I sat there and I listened, I felt this feeling of bitterness towards God rise up inside my heart. You see, our family has been part of a core church planning team that had disbanded last year and each unit going in a different direction. We lost our team leader, Uh, our church planner had gotten pulled from the field due to his wife's illness and the work of forming a core team uh, for our worship has been really slow. We've actually been looking for a place uh, to worship for the last couple of years you know, for a building, but so far we haven't found anything within our budget or that will meet our ministry needs. And even after hours of processing and talking with MTW leadership and counseling for my wife and I and praying together, that bitterness towards God is still there. And as I listened to these wonderful testimonies of fruit and success, I looked over at my wife And I grabbed her hand as she looked back at me on the verge of tears. And as we drove home, we talked about how we both processed that moment together. We've been in Japan the last five years trying to see our ministry come to fruition like that, I said, why didn't God give us that story? Why did did God give us a story with so much pain and sadness and struggle in it? And I had to confess, to God my own bitterness against him in that moment, my own doubt whether or not he really is in control, and my own pride of thinking that I know better than he does. And I'm telling you this not because I want your recognition or your pity, well, maybe a little bit, but I'm telling you this because my heart needs to be reminded of the good news of this gospel the good news that God is merciful despite my bitterness and my own rebellion against him. Yes, I need this wonderful gospel for my own heart and my own healing. So how has your heart been? Maybe your circumstances have not been good at all. Maybe they haven't gone the way that you've wanted them to. Maybe you've been frustrated with God and grumbled against him. Maybe you've lost someone recently that you love you're angry with God. God, if you're so good, why would you allow this person to be taken from me? Maybe your relationship with your boss or your coworkers has been really hard. Why do I have to put up with these difficult people every day? Maybe you were looking forward to the school year and COVID has complicated things again. You're tired of living in the unknown and when things are changing every day. Maybe your body is sick or injured, and you're not sure how long it's going to be that way. And in the pain and the uncertainty, trusting in God is hard. Maybe your spouse has left you, and you are raising kids by yourself, and every day is a struggle, and you're wondering, where are you, God, in the midst of this? Maybe your job pays the bills, but it's not really what you want to be doing, and you wonder, how much longer do I have to live like this? In these dark times, we ask, why are things so hard? Where are you, God? Why haven't you given me this thing that I've asked for? I've prayed and I've asked you, but you've not answered me. Why do you allow me to go through this pain and this trial, this suffering? But here's the beauty of the gospel, is that in our anger and in our rebellion against God, he meets our rebellion with his grace and provision, The times in our life that we are powerless to change, he provides everything we need. Israel deserved the wrath and the judgment of God for their rebellion, their lack of faith, and their doubt of whether God was with them. But judgment didn't come down on them. It came down on the rock. In the New Testament, Paul tells the church in Corinth that the rock in Exodus 17 actually points forward to Jesus Christ. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses into the cloud and in the sea. They all drank, uh, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock was struck so that water could flow. God was showing them that sin and rebellion cannot just be erased and forgotten. There was a price. The rock had to bear the judgment of God in order to bring life to the people. And in the same way, God provides Jesus as the bearer and the judgment for our sin and rebellion against him. Christ is the rock that was struck for us. But he is not just the rock that was struck for us. He's also the living water that we need. And just as the Israelites drank a physical water that perished, Jesus would be the rock that was crushed. There was a better water that would come. Jesus was the water that provided for our souls that they may live. Because water will only satisfy our physical thirst, but only Jesus, the true living water, will satisfy the deepest needs of our souls. Jesus is the better water that our souls need. And Israel's story is essentially our story. Because as the church, Israel is part of our story as believers. And we can look back and learn how God was faithful to his people then and how he's faithful to us now. Like Israel, we are also on a journey towards a greater promised land, one that will never fade or perish. And in this wilderness of life, we too will have hard struggles. There'll be chaos. It'll be uncomfortable, there will be trials, and we will have lots of opportunities to grumble and complain against God. Like Israel, we will be tempted to doubt and be discouraged. We will be tempted to doubt God's love for us, his plan for us, and whether or not he is with us. We will be tempted to reverse the roles with God and play the judge. We will point the finger and accuse God in our anger and frustration but I want you to be encouraged that even in our times of rebellion, doubt, and discouragement, that God responds with his grace and provision. God doesn't get tired of our grumbling and complaining because the judgment has already been taken place. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for our sins. The judgment came down on Christ and not on us. And because Jesus took the penalty for our sins on the cross, he offers us eternal life, the true living water. And so just as the Israelites drank of the water from the rock, this morning I invite you to come and drink of the living water that Jesus Christ offers us. He is what our souls need. The prophet Isaiah invites us in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Is your soul thirsty this morning? You're invited to come and to drink. Our Heavenly Father is waiting, and Jesus, the living water, has been poured out for us so that we may live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We confess that just like the Israelites, we often put you to the test. We too struggle to trust you. We confess that we are often depend, dependent on ourselves rather than you. And we confess that we play the judge and decide for ourselves what is best for our own lives. But God, we thank you that you are a good God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for your people. Thank you that in our rebellion against you, that you give us your own son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sins and to give us the living water that our souls need. Lead our hearts this morning in worship to you, the giver of life and the living water that our souls desperately need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.